Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. It is really good to see you. It's good to see you, whether you're in this room and together with us, lighting candles and doing all the things, or maybe you're at home lighting candles and hopefully your house hasn't burnt down by this point. So uh, I'm grateful for you. And uh, we had an incredible service last night. I'm so thankful that you're here for tonight. And uh, it's interesting because if I haven't met you yet, met you yet, my name is John. I get to serve as a lead pastor here at Center Church. And this is actually my fourth Christmas here. And it feels like I literally just showed up or we just moved here. And all of a sudden, four years go by. And I'm really thankful that in the midst of what feels like the weirdest year in history, uh, we get to still gather and be together and celebrate Christmas and celebrate this powerful story. As you reflect, I, I try to do this every week of Christmas, every year, try to reflect on the past year. And some of you have done this. Maybe you're a planner, so you've already got all your resolutions done, or you've got things you want to accomplish, or the kind of person you want to become next year. Maybe that's losing weight, or, or looking better, or getting into that school, or getting that new job, whatever it is. Uh, but as I think about the story of 2020, and what I hope happens next year, in like the next couple of days, Secretly, if I was just brutally honest with all of you, what's happening inside of me is, is I really want 2021 to do this to 2020. Like, <laughs> if that's 2020 in the, on the left, on the right is what I hope happens in the next couple of weeks. Like, just magically things would get better. And I know that's probably not actually going to happen, but I like to dream, okay? Don't blame me, it's Christmas. But as I think about the story of 2020, as you reflect backwards on all that's happened this year, the story of 2020 was kind of a messed up and broken one. Maybe even for you personally. I mean, you think January, February, you started, the news was covered with co like coverage of all these wildfires. And it's almost like, I didn't even remember those still happened. Like that was this year. And then March hit, and then this pandemic, and we're all journeying through it. Some of you are working from home in ways you never had to work from home. And others of you are still figuring it out. And, and to get more real, some of you are wrestling tonight with Christmas without some certain people in your family. This year, if you had to summarize it in a lot of ways, I've heard people say this online, and I would agree the story of 2020 was kind of a broken one. There's some parts about it that just feel broken and feel off. Again, whether it's wildfires or pandemic or divided election or riots in the summer or financial struggles in your home or endless Facebook debates about whatever people want to debate about these days, like as you journey through all of those things, that all fits into this year. The story of 2020 was kind of a broken one. And I was reflecting this last month as we led up to Christmas, which felt like it took 13 months to get back around to this Christmas, but here we are. I was wondering, is the Christmas story still true? Not, not like factually or historically accurate, because I believe that is true. We have great reliability around the story itself of Christmas. But what, what about like true for me? Like the power that Christmas holds, is that still available to people like me in the midst of a of crazy broken 2020 story? Because what I know is true is as you journey through the gospel story, as you enter into the Gospel of Luke specifically, the story of Israel, they were essentially living out their own version of 2020. Like they were dealing with an oppressive military force, the Romans who were trying to push them down and, and drive them out of their hometowns. And this is what happens to this young couple, Mary and Joseph. If you look at the story just of Jesus's birth, it's quite 2020-esque. I mean, he is born to an unwed teen mom 
who, who is engaged to a person who is now shamed in his community, shamed in his society for having a child out of wedlock. And oh, by the way, it was God's. <laughs> like, that's his excuse. I promise it wasn't me. Like, and all Joseph's parents are like, come on, man. He's like, it was God, I swear. I promise. Like that, and that's actually what Luke records. This is the story of Christmas. I mean, they, they have the oppressive government fighting among them. They have divisions within their own church community and faith community. There's doubts of God, uh, doubts about God swirling in their area. Like, is the Messiah ever going to come? Is this ever actually going to get better? Is the story of our lives, Israel's life, is that ever going to turn around and get better? And oh, by the way, Jesus, God himself, is born into a cave full of smelly, dirty animals. And all the things that smelly, dirty animals bring with them. Like, this is where we meet God. This is where Jesus is found in the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Well, if you fast forward a couple chapters, what I think is interesting about Luke is that for 30 years, Jesus is living and operating in relative obscurity. Like, your Bible is the same as mine. As you open that up, there's very little about what Jesus did from birth up until about 30 years old. Sure, there were like bits and pieces sprinkled in some of the Gospel accounts, but we don't know what was his 16th birthday like. What did he do in his 20s? What was Jesus like in his 20s? All we know that he was working alongside his dad, Joseph, as a carpenter. That's about it. And if you skip forward to Luke 4, we actually find the first words Jesus ever speaks. And I think for us, there's something to be learned about Christmas in Luke 4. And it's something that I often overlook, I've often missed. And I've read Luke 4 hundreds of times. Maybe you read Luke at your family Christmas gathering in the next couple hours or maybe even tomorrow. But if you have a Bible or a device, I actually want to interact with this story a little bit. If, if you want to turn with me to Luke 14, or if you're watching online, you can obviously quickly Google that, and you can do that with your phone right now, or if you brought a Bible with you. But in Luke 14, 4, uh, verse 14, here's what Luke writes. Jesus comes out of this time of testing in the wilderness. The enemies of God are, are trying to stop him. And in verse 14, here's what we read. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. News about him spread through the whole countryside. See, Jesus was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Apparently, Jesus was a popular teacher. I mean, people wanted him around. So he goes to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, which you think would be a really good scenario. Like, you think, if you're going to have some first words recorded in the Gospels, it would be in your hometown, and that's what happens. He goes back to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stands up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Now, if you've been journeying through our series the last couple weeks, you know Isaiah pretty well by now. Like we've been rooted in Isaiah 61 for what feels like the whole month of December. And through Isaiah 61 is one of the most pivotal and beautiful prophecies you'll find in Scripture. And it's talking about the kingdom of God, what it looks like when the kingdom of God will break into the human story. And Jesus says, give me Isaiah. I want to teach from Isaiah. And look at what Jesus picks in this massive scroll. Isaiah is one of the longest books of prophecy. It would have likely spanned the entire floor in front of me to be able to read. And he takes it from the attendant, asks for the prophet Isaiah's scroll. It's handed to him. He unrolls it, finding the place where it's written, and listen to what he reads in verse 18. 
Isaiah 61. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is Isaiah 61. I mean, just through and through. He's taking bits and pieces of this chapter and uniting them together. And essentially the emphasis in all of these scriptures that he's saying in front of these Jewish people is, it's about me. So he rolls up the scroll, verse 20, gives it back to the attendant, and Jesus sat down. This is like the first century equivalent of a mic drop moment, okay? Jesus is like, take this scroll, and he just sits down. And it says that the synagogue, everyone in this church building, their eyes were locked in on him. Like, their eyes were locked in on him, and if Luke could give us a little more detail, I'd probably say their Jewish jaws were dropped on the floor. Because what Jesus was saying, and he kind of gives it away in the next verse, he says, he began by saying to them today, This scripture, Isaiah 61, the prophecies about the kingdom of God coming to fulfillment among you and bringing a redeemer, a Messiah with it, it's been fulfilled in your hearing. What you just encountered was the kingdom of God at hand, right in front of you. And and it's happening through the person of Jesus. God himself has interwoven and written himself into the story of humanity now. And so as they were probably processing this, I mean, why did Jesus pick this passage of all options? I mean, there's a lot of options in Isaiah, a lot of options in the scripture. Uh, If you're sitting there as a Jewish person, you're thinking, okay, he just read like mom's favorite verse, and now he's saying it's about him. Wait a second. I thought we got saved through like moral perfection. I thought we got saved through a law. I thought we got saved through purity and rituals and coming to the synagogue on the right days and praying the right things at the right time. I thought that's how we got saved. And Jesus is saying, actually, as I read this, it's been fulfilled in your hearing. The way you get to God is through me. The way you arrive at rescue and redemption and salvation is not through your ability to create a great story or your ability to live a morally perfect and sinless life. It's actually through a relationship with me. See, Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 61 becomes true at Christmas. That's why we're still sitting here and talking about it thousands of years later. Because what happened at Christmas was Jesus manifested this prophecy. God himself was going to step in to the human story and save us. We could not save ourselves. This is what Luke is documenting. This is what Jesus is trying to communicate Um, ironically, I was sitting with a group of other pastors a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about Russian aeronautics. You heard that totally right. Like, I don't know why pastors sit around and talk about that, but we were. We were literally talking about uh, this famous Russian cosmonaut called Yuri Gergren. Yuri was the first person ever to make it into space and come back safely, I should add, <laughs> beyond a monkey or dog or whatever. Like he, he actually made it back, and he was Russian, so he finally lands back in Russia. He's in Moscow for this press conference, and everyone is like waiting literally around the world to hear what this guy has to say. Like, what was it like? No one had ever before Yuri been into the cosmos like that. Well, essentially, he says a couple things, and then he delivers this line that kind of rung throughout Soviet history, and, and we still talk about it today. He says, I went to space, and God was not there. 
Now, obviously, he's coming from a very atheistic culture and community and environment in this time in Russia. And he says, I, I finally, I can prove it. I was in space. I was where God lives, and he's not there. Like, it's just dark, empty space. I went up to space, and God wasn't there. Now, this quote was so interesting to writers and theologians at a specific one named C.S. Lewis, who some of you are familiar with that name, Chronicles of Narnia and a lot of other books. He latches onto this line and essentially says, like, I'm going to write an article kind of refuting this. Like, he goes after Yuri, this, guy, this British theologian. So he writes this whole article and basically says, Yuri, you went to space, but you missed something critical about the Christian story. He says, Yuri, God doesn't relate to humanity like someone on the top floor of a, of a building relates to someone on the bottom floor. God doesn't relate to humanity like someone on the second story of a house in, in their bedroom relates to someone downstairs in the kitchen. See, if Shakespeare wanted to be known by Hamlet. Some of you like literature, English literature, it's all coming back right now, but maybe there's some scars there, but let me scratch on those for a minute. Like uh, Shakespeare and Hamlet, Hamlet himself would not know that Shakespeare exists without Shakespeare writing himself into the story. And that's what happens. C.S. Lewis says, Yuri, that's what God did in Jesus. That's the power of Christmas. God actually wrote himself into the story so you and I could know what God is really like. We're, we're not trying to figure out a way, how do I climb the stairs? How do I get in a spaceship to get out there? How do I figure out how to physically get myself to God through my moral perfection or having the right marriage or, or making enough money or getting enough accolades? Like He says, that's not how you do it. Christmas is not about that. Christmas is the moment that Jesus wrote himself in our story. And here's what this means, that the story is still true. Jesus wrote himself into our story, which means the story is still true. It means that second chances are available to you. It means that everything else you read about in the scriptures is true for you too. Not just the people in these pages, but actually for you. The grace, the mercy, the kindness, uh, the righteousness, the the compassion you need this Christmas is available to you because Jesus wrote himself into the human story. You and I can know him and have a relationship with him. See, I grew up thinking Christmas was about like Jesus breaking into Mary's story and Joseph's story and Elizabeth's story and Simeon and Zechariah, all these names that we preach about every single Christmas. That's what I thought it was about. But Luke 4, what Jesus is saying is it's not just about that. Christmas is about the fact I'm writing myself into your story, and you have the opportunity through surrender and laying down your agenda and sin and taking on a life with me. So I think it's powerful in Luke 4 because if this is true, if Jesus really has fulfilled this prophecy that the kingdom of God has come, that Christmas is this moment that breaks into all of time, that means everything else that Jesus said was true as well. Not just who he was, but what he said. That means that uh, he relates to you and I as a loving father for the rebellious 18-year-old who can't stop drinking. It means that God relates to us as a healer, not a stern judge for the husband addicted to pornography. It means that he relates to us as a lost treasure that he's pursuing for the mom who's raising three kids on her own and feels like she is 
forgotten. It means that he relates to us as true freedom, true peace for the college student who feels constant anxiety and stress every new semester. All those things are true because Jesus wrote himself in his story, which means the story is still true. That grace is still available to you. That the story of Christmas is not something to feel warm and fuzzy about, even though that's good. It means that your eternity, your chance at life, your destiny is actually has a potential to change. And I think tonight, for some of you, it may change. For some of you, it may be redirected. For some of you, your story may be rewritten. I remember when my story changed. About 10 years ago, I was sitting on, uh, on my bed in, in a room in Auckland, New Zealand. And I had just graduated high school, and I decided, you know what? My story's pretty boring. <laughs> I'm, I grew up in West Michigan. I grew up in Caledonia. Like, not a lot going on in the big b- bustling metropolis of Caledonia. So I decided I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out and see the world. I'm going to raise enough money to where I can basically just live for a year. And so that's what I did. I worked through high school and eventually left for Auckland, New Zealand. I'm sitting in my bed, though, a couple months into this awesome experience after surviving bungee jumping and class six whitewater rapids and all these other things. And I just found myself feeling totally discontent with life. Like I'd done all the things that would make for a great story, but I wasn't living a great story. There was still sin in my life. There was all sorts of pride and brokenness. There was fractured relationships. Things were not great. I had a pretty broken story. I remember sitting there about 10 years ago today, reading this book from a pastor, actually from Grand Rapids, who's since passed away. I remember reading this book, and he was talking about how many Christians tend to misunderstand what Jesus came for, who he really was. And I was reading that, and I was like, is this guy does he know me? <laughs> Is he writing about me in this book? That's how I felt. See, I'd been around church. I'd been around Jesus my whole life, but completely missed it, completely missed what he came to do. See, he doesn't just come to give me a better story. He didn't just say, if you blend me into your mix of career and money and relationships and status and looks and whatever else we think is important, you're going to have a great story. That's not how the gospel works. See, Jesus says, if you will lay down your story and let me write myself in and be the guide, be the king, be the Lord, the savior over your story, you will have true life. And I was sitting there in a bedroom about 8,000 miles away from everything that was comfortable and normal to me. That moment crystallized and I surrendered my story. So Jesus, you can have my story. I don't know how that looks. I don't know where I go from here. I just know I need to follow you. (laughs) So I want to ask you the question tonight. What do you need this Christmas? What do you need? Because I can tell you it's not more money. It's not just a better relationship. It's not awesome clothes. It's not a nicer car. It's not an upgrade in your workplace next year. I don't think it's those things. I think you and I need the same thing this Christmas. I, I need a reminder that the incarnate God through the person of Jesus is still inviting me to follow him, to trust him, to surrender to him, to find my hope and my security in him, to place my meaning and my purpose in life in him, not my own feeble attempts at a great story. It's to lay down my story.
I know for some of us, as we sit here at Christmas, sometimes it takes a story to communicate that. Sometimes it takes seeing it played out for us to really understand it and to feel. And for that reason, I want to show you just for a few minutes, I want you to sit back and listen into this story of the power of Christmas and of second chances. Check it out. To Amanda, my beautiful daughter. much he loved his child. I've been thinking a lot about this story lately. I don't know everything that's been going on these last few years. I know that you've been let down by others. I know that working three jobs was exhausting. I know that being a single mother was a huge responsibility. You may have felt like you were doing the best thing for Will when you left. Or maybe you didn't, I don't know. I'm sure there's a lot more that I don't know. A lot of pain and hurt and pressure that you're feeling. I don't claim to understand it all, but I do know that I miss my daughter. And so does your little one and so does your mother. I'd like to think that, that that story from the Bible, that's us, me and you. On the day you come home, I'll be there. I'll run out to you and I'll hug you and I'll throw the biggest party that you've ever seen. I would be endlessly happy for you to be home. But 
I'm afraid it might not happen that way. The cancer is spreading in my lungs, and each day has become more and more difficult to endure. Part of why I'm writing this letter is just to say that I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I might be gone before you return, but I still hope you do with or without me. It may not be easy. You may feel like you don't belong anymore. We don't always get the chance to fix all the things that get broken in life. There's a whole world of I'm sorry's that may never get spoken. We may not get to say all the goodbyes. And if I don't get to see you or smile again, if I don't get another chance to tell you you're beautiful, if I don't get to be there for Christmas dinner or to wrap the presents with the kids, if I'm not there, then I just want you to know one thing. The story is still true. You'll always be welcome home. Some people will give you a second chance. Some might not. But I know Reverend Alberts was right. God will always give you a second chance. He will always be there, ready for you, waiting for you. And I'll do the same as long as I can. And if not, then I hope you get this letter. Know that I adore you. With love, Dad. story still true. This is the power of Christmas. That the God who stepped into our story has made a way for you to know him and to be freed by him. And this Christmas doesn't have to be like every other Christmas. Because God did exactly what that dad did for Amanda in Jesus. Laid himself down became one of us so that you and I would know what real freedom, what real life is like. You may ask, how do I do that? How do I start that? Where do I go from here? And I want to give you a really practical step. And we're actually going to, in a moment, just as a representation of what God has done, writing himself in our story, is to come up. And every one of you in your pot of seats or nearby have, uh, maybe under your seat, have a, a marker. We're just going to come up just like people did last night. And as a symbol, as a representation of us identifying with Jesus, we're going to write our names in the story. Maybe for you, you've never done that. Maybe for you, you've never surrendered your story. Maybe for you, this is the day. This is your moment in Auckland, New Zealand. This is the, the surrendering point of your life. And, and you begin a relationship with Jesus today. I don't know where you're at, but I know the story is still true. I've seen it and believe it. I, it's changed me. And so as we lead into this next song, I want to invite you, just when you feel ready, 
for all of us to respond in this way is to come up and just sign your name. And if you're making that decision for the very first time, you've never surrendered your story to Jesus, and this is like the day that you're doing that, could you just indicate that in some way, whether it's like a star or circle it or underline it right here on the canvas? And if you're watching online, just put your name in the chat with Christmas 2020, and we're going to add your name to this canvas as well. Because here's what I know. The most important thing about Christmas is not what's under a tree or the traditions you uphold or the Zoom call tomorrow with your family or whatever Christmas looks like for you. It's going to be moments like this in which you're able to actually do business with God. And so as we sing this next song, I invite you when you feel ready to come up and write your name into the story as we celebrate him together. Let's worship.